ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to ESRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The origins of the war in the Donbass continues to spark intense and politically charged debate. Was it merely caused by Russian agents, as the Ukrainian government maintains? Or was it a response to the genocidal fascist junta in Kiev, as Russian propaganda argues? Most discussions either characterize the war as an intrastate war between Ukraine and Russia, or a proxy war between the West and Russia. Is it a civil war or a quasi-civil war, as I recently heard on the Power Vertical podcast? The conflict certainly has elements of all of these. Yet I've been dissatisfied with these labels and the general discussion of the war's origins, mostly because most narratives leave out a crucial component, the roles and motivations of locals in the push for separatism and in fighting the conflict. I started to get some answers when I read Sergei Gudelia's recent paper, The Donbass Rift, so I invited him on the podcast to talk about his findings into the local dimensions of the war's origins. Sergei Kadelia is an assistant professor of political science at Baylor University, where he specializes in, in state formation, civil war, and political violence in the post-communist world. His most recent article is The Donbass Rift, first published in Russian in the journal Contrapunkt and in English in Russian Politics and Law. Here's Sergei Kadelia. So you've been following the developments in eastern Ukraine and the war in the Donbass for a while now. I actually got the, had the pleasure of hearing you give a talk about it at the University of Pittsburgh last year. And the origins of the war in the Donbass are still hotly debated. And in many ways, the way one tells the story tends to also reveal one's political position in all of these matters. So why don't we start by having you explain what some of the competing narratives are for the beginning of the war in the Donbass? So the competing narratives can be basically divided into three broad, very broad sections. One is, of course, the narrative that points the finger to Russia. Russia, um, this is very close to an official narrative that is promoted in the Ukrainian uh, media. Russia is viewed as a causal factor in producing this war for four or five reasons. First, Russia is viewed as an external supporter for many marginal actors that joined the separatist movement. So there are a lot of stories about how Russia funded different civil, quasi-civil society organizations from right after the Orange Revolution that were pro-Russian or separatist in their ideology. These were viewed as insignificant, weak, marginal groups, but they gained significance in the context of post-Euromaidan politics. And we'll talk more about it, I hope, today. The second factor has to do with the infiltration of local and national government structures by the Russian agents or proactive attempts by the Russian forces to recruit some of the local officials or government officials to their side. The third factor has to do with the role of the Russian propaganda and media messaging, particularly during the Euromaidan revolution. And finally, uh, there is obviously a lot has been written about the material support that was provided to the separatist movement from the Russian side, uh, both financial and weaponry, and of course, the presence of Russian soldiers later on in, uh, in the conflict. The second broad set of causal narratives point to the role of uh, local political elites. 
So there has been a number of articles written about the role of uh, Yanukovych family, who was uh, allegedly funding the separatist movement. There has been a number of articles written about the bargaining failures between local elites, including the oligarchs like Renat Akhmetov, and their failure to come to a negotiated agreement with the Ukrainian government. And also the role of organizations like the Russian Orthodox Church, or rather Ukrainian Orthodox Church, the Moscow Patriarchate, that was present in Donbass and was allegedly actively involved in ideologically and materially supporting the separatist movement. And finally, the third very broad set of causal narratives point to the role of societal factors. Some of these factors have to do with the history of Donbass, with the political culture of people who live there. People identify Donbass, the society that lives in Donbass, as very unique in some of its characteristics. Uh, Some point to the role of intolerance or high level of xenophobia, for example, among the locals. Others point to the uh, legacy of violence in Donbass and the experience that uh, locals had with violence. The high percentage or share of criminals, for example, among the locals in Donbass. And finally, a set of factors related to emotional response uh, to Euromaidan revolution, the sense of insecurity, the sense of outrage that people felt after the Uster of Yanukovych, and the role, of course, of likelihood of uh, severing of trade ties with Russia. So a number of articles wrote, uh, uh, have been written about the workers' role in this process and the extent to which um, the prospect of losing a job influenced their decision to join the insurgents. Now, your narrative, which you lay out in an article called The Donbass Rift, and I, I look at your narrative as an attempt to get at the origins of the war from below. In a broad sense. And and there in your article, you emphasize local dynamics and local actors and the mentalities and identities of people in the Donbass. Why is a narrative from below important? And, and how does it fit into the, the three narratives that you laid out? So it's important because I think the broader references to Russia or to political elites are incomplete because they... Numerous studies of the insurgency campaigns argue that without cooperation and involvement of the local people who reside on the territory where where the insurgency or the armed conflict happens, the insurgency will very quickly fail, will very quickly dissipate. And that has been a trend for decades and decades. Most of the insurgencies around the world succeeded. Those are the, the ones that lasted the longest period of time were the ones that had the backing from the local populace. So I think in order to explain the outbreak, and we also have to remember, I think, the fact that in Ukrainian terms, in the history, in the recent political history of Ukraine, this was an unprecedented fact. The emergence, the outbreak of such violence was very unusual. It never happened before. So just pointing the finger, I think, to the external factors really doesn't do a good job at explaining why we have such a lasting, long-lasting insurgency. And I think we need to look more specifically at, A, the motives of individuals who participated, who decided to join the insurgency, the reasons why many of the locals who were Ukrainian citizens decided to reorient themselves and give up on their attachment and loyalty to the Ukrainian state. And second of all, I think it's also important to try to understand the context in which this was happening. In other words, uh, it was a 
the post-revolutionary context where a lot of things were in flux. Many of the state bodies were significantly weakened, particularly the law enforcement. And there was also a major question about the future politics of the state itself, given the high level of uncertainty about the direction in which the country was going. I think it was not that unusual that Crimea and Donbass became these two outliers in Ukraine that produced a greater uh, resistance, uh, initially peaceful resistance, and then, of course, violent resistance to the uh, new Ukrainian authorities. I think in the Crimea's case, it was very much ethnically based, of course, that response, and majority ethnic Russians. It was a response of people who had irredentist feelings and desired, desired to come back and uh, reintegrate themselves with the Russian state. But in the case of Donbass, I think much of it has been driven less by the desire to join Russia, but more by the desire to maintain their own uniqueness and to maintain sort of their own ability to govern themselves as they wish, to to keep their own monuments that they would like to have, to sing the songs that they want to sing, to speak the language that they want to speak, and so on. And much of it, I think, is related to the previous several, 220 years of political evolution of local political culture, which consistently through all the polls showed a greater attachment to higher autonomous rights, to greater autonomy. So uh, a number of polls have been done over this uh, last 20, 25 years, which showed that Donetsk, particularly Donetsk Oblast, was the only one that had the highest level of support for autonomy. Of course, these were also the regions that had the referendums on whether or not to claim to become autonomous. These referendums happened in 1994. And these, I think, these sentiments persisted for a long time. And there was a clear sense that we want to be, somehow have this opportunity to govern ourselves. So the regional identity, which I basically point to, the role of of the regional identity became a mechanism in my view, of coordinating a large number of people around this focal point, the need for self-governance and the need for some kind of greater autonomy from the government that they viewed illegitimate. Right? So this is a very important point. The, the large scale, the sense, the uh, broad scale of illegitimacy of the Ukrainian government. Now, many people will, will point that there's really no strong separatist in the Donbass But it seems to me that one of the crucial issues here is that you have, as you've explained, you have this context and the Maidan revolution triggers a reaction based in that context. So do you think that that the revolutionary context is is one of the important triggers for the the outbreak of separatist um, mobilization? I think it was one of the two crucial factors. Absolutely. I think Without considering the effect of the Euromaidan revolution on public sentiments, we cannot explain the outbreak of insurgency in Donbass. I basically view the outcome, the violent outcome that we are seeing today in Donbass and the war that has been going on for more than two years now as uh, as the result of the influence of two critical events, two external factors. One is the Euromaidan revolution and the dynamics of the Euromaidan revolution, the the rhetoric that we heard from many of the leaders of the of the Euromaidan revolution, the means that have been used by the revolutionaries themselves to acquire power. So all of this combined had this uh, profound effect on people 
in Donbass who disagreed with it. And second of all, of course, was the Russian very active involvement from the start, interference, and then later annexation of uh, part of the Ukrainian territory. So these two critical events, I think, by combining themselves, they had a very important effect on, uh, on uh, changing the set of preferences that people had on the ground. The Euromaidan revolution provided an emotional trigger, a reason. It also created a favorable structural environment for an uprising by weakening the government structures, by weakening the state, by destroying uh, the presence of the state in many parts of Ukraine. You know, there's, there's this famous uh, saying of uh, Hannah Arendt in her book on violence, where she said that once violence emerges, it gradually leads to the disappearance of power. So violence and power are two things that are not, necess- are not, in, are not compatible. And of course, the one month of very violent resistance by the uh, revolutionaries in uh, Kiev and then in other cities around Ukraine legitimized the use of violence as uh, a protest tactic and gradually led to the dissipation of power or government authority around Ukraine. So this was an opportunity. The second critical event, of course, the annexation of Russia increased the sense of the estimates of the success rate of the possible uprising among its participants. So it showed that it's possible to challenge the state and that if you challenge the state, you can actually gain, acquire external support. So it further lowered the risks associated with the uprising and provided sort of, so to speak, a demonstration effect for the locals to engage in similar things uh, that happened that were successful. I want to have you talk a bit more about the role of violence, because one of the things you noted in the article was violence on the, and the Maidan was a formative experience for some of the people who ended up joining anti-Maidan militias, and in particular police. It's really interesting that you, you point out that you have police from the east who are going through rotations in Kiev, and they're coming back to the Donbass, and they're different. They have, they have a different understanding of what's going on because of that, that formative experience of violence. So talk about how violence influenced people's sympathy for separatism. So I think violence had three important effects. First, it helped to create strong networks of activists that initially, uh, of course, were viewed as paid thugs. They were, that's how they were presented by the Maidan supporters. And of course, many of them were thugs. There is no question about it. And most of them probably were paid. But in the process of being there and engaging in the constant confrontation with the Maidan supporters under this big umbrella of anti-Maidan movement, of course, these guys, as it turned out, acquired their own understanding of what's right and wrong, acquired their own identity and their own commitment to the cause of fighting Maidan. So many of the of these individuals who were involved, who were pro- 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 possibly brought in through buses and uh, paid to come to Kiev, then later, after the success of the revolution, when they came back to Donbass, then they were the ones who were the first ones to join the separatist groups, then the separatist army. The second, uh, of course, effect, you mentioned the law enforcement, and that has a tremendous significance for the organization of the separatist armed resistance, because it was not only the fact that the law enforcement participated in these clashes and view and sort of was very active in as a counterforce to the Maidan revolutionaries, but it also, I think, was this 
unprecedented use of violence against the police that went unpunished. So for the first time, in uh, again, in the his political history of Ukrainian state, you have the killings of the police that are happening, especially the, the, the killings uh, accelerated over the last three days, the final three days of the revolution, that created this sense that the government basically gives up on them and that the new authorities are going to probably go after them and punish them for participation in the resistance to the revolution. So the new uh, post-revolutionary government was viewed by many people in the law enforcement in Berkut, in riot police, as the ones who would later on go and punish them for their actions. That, of course, turned out to be not true. As we know, there were very few people from the Berkut riot police who went on trial. In general, most of the riot, Berkut riot police who participated in these clashes now uh, are part of the new riot police force, and many of them are fighting right now in Donbass. These are the guys from other regions. But again, this is the importance of the regional identity, I think. Many people who came uh, from Berkut, who went and returned to Donbass, they were the ones who then uh, conveyed uh, these emotions to many local law enforcement officials and many regular police officers. And that was one of the important reasons, I think, for the breakdown of uh, authority, government authority in uh, the entire region, where you basically had mass defections of police uh, initially, just general passivity and non-interference when separatists were uh, seizing the buildings. But then, again, a very active involvement in the separatist movement. And that has been, by the way, documented. For example, even the uh, a website that is very controversial in Ukraine, I know. It's called Miratvorets, uh, the Peacemaker, which is basically a large database of social profiles, social media profiles of people who participate in separatist movement. If you go there you will see that many of the people who were identified as the ones who now participate in the separatist movement had a background in police or in the Ukrainian military. This, this is a very clear trend there. Another thing that I found actually interesting is the role of and the cooperation of local authorities with separatist leaders and then also the role of local big business in the Donbass. And you describe a, a process of a quiet secession in late April and early May 2014 uh, talk about this process, and in particular, the, the role of this cooperation between local authorities, separatists, also security services, and uh, to the, the security services loyalty to the party of regions, and also local big business or oligarchs in this secession process that, that went on. This particular finding is the result of a field research I did in Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts in May and June of last year. And Initially, I was skeptical about the role of elites in general because I didn't really see any clear-cut uh, elite leaders in that uprising. But then when I went, and this is sort of a very the importance of doing field research uh, on these topics, uh, when I went and interviewed a number of you know, both local activists and former government officials who were there at, at the time when these towns in Luhansk and Donetsk were captured by the separatists, I learned from them basically that there was an indirect, sometimes a direct involvement of local elites in each of these towns that created space involvement in, the, in this initial politically motivated uh, separatist movement, political separatist movement, that created space, crucial space for initially for the demonstrations and then provided administrative resources, organizational resources for holding the referendum on independence in May of uh, 2014. 
But what's important, I think, and that's how my understanding of the events differs from some other narratives that exist out there. You hear a lot about the top-down control of this movement by specific individuals within the local elites. So you have uh, here names like Akhmetov, you hear names like Efremov, you hear names again like Yanukovych. And there is this sense from these narratives that these guys were basically giving orders and everyone on the local in the local towns were following all the orders that they heard from, from top down. What I learned by being there and interviewing the local officials was that actually the process was extremely chaotic. There was clearly no hierarchical subordination to any elite actor at the very top. And a lot of the decisions that were taken uh, by the local officials were taken on their own with a a great sense of, of uncertainty about what's going on and an attempt to hedge their bets in the context of, again, lack of clear presence of law enforcement. And most importantly, lack of a clear presence of the Ukrainian state. And this, this factor I cannot overemphasize enough, because as a number of people told me, particularly in Luhansk Oblast, um, at the, already at the time when Slavyansk in Donetsk Oblast was captured, Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, and others, already after you had Strelkov sitting there, in many towns in Luhansk Oblast, like Severodonetsk, like Lysychansk, there was no serious separatist resistance. There were basically no armed men on the streets, and the local officials were really not cursed by anyone. But what they were doing, uh, that's why I describe it as a quiet secession, is that they were basically preparing ground through bargaining and negotiations with whoever they thought were was in charge at that time in Donbass for holding the referendum and for basically trying to to allow the local separatist uh, leaders to organize people on the streets, to organize demonstrations, and to promote this idea of separatism. So it was basically a very chaotic response, I would call it, by the local officials to, uh, to the challenges that they felt existed to their own power and survival. And they were, by, by doing that, they were basically hedging their bets because there was no uh, serious Ukrainian authorities there. I also heard about instances where, when local officials were asking, calling Kiev, calling the uh, Ukrainian government officials and asking for additional reinforcements, for help, for the provision of police forces that would come from other regions because they felt that they were, they were not capable of controlling things on the ground. In response, from what I was told, there was no action. Uh, There was no desire to interfere. There was no desire to help these local authorities quell that separatist movement. So it it was a very difficult situation where you had many factors, but the absence of the state, I think, was a a very important factor that would help us to understand the preferences of local elites. And where would you put people like Igor Strelkov and other Russian agents who were coming in and stirring things up? What role would you give them in this process? Well, they uh, certainly played a a crucial role in focusing uh, government's attention on the issue, on the problem, on the challenge of Russian intervention. Uh, They allowed the government to reframe the conflict as the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, thus basically downgrading the or diminishing, rejecting the role of the agency of the local people, the role that local uh, views have on that uh, movement. And 
it had tremendous, I think, tactical implications because from the standpoint of the military strategy, excessive focus on capturing Slavyansk was basically based on the assumption that once we get rid of, Slav- of Strelkov, once we got, get rid of the green men there, sitting there, everything else will fall into place and the resistance will be destroyed. So in a way, the attention, by refocusing attention on the problem of Slavyansk, uh, Strelkov allowed these other actors in different towns that were basically keeping their head low, they were not very visible initially, uh, he helped them to organize uh, and prepare ground for holding the separatist referendum and then organize and recruit people into the separatist militia. So remember that basically in this period of first two months, there was an active recruitment drive uh, that was organized by the local separatist leaders in these different small towns that then helped to basically organize resistance to the Ukrainian army once it started to advance through the entire front, once it started moving to these small towns and trying to capture not only Slavyansk, but many other towns uh, in Luhansk and the Nesk Oblast. So that's one important implication of, of uh, Srilkov's presence. But another implication of Srilkov's presence is, of course, that it increased the sense that the Russian support may be coming. In a way, the propaganda that was coming from the Ukraine was counterproductive because it was reinforcing the initial sentiments among the locals in Donbass that things may actually go according to the Crimean scenario. While, as we know now, and I think it was very clear at the time, the Crimean scenario was not implemented in Donbass. There was basically private initiative of the individuals who may have received some kind of encouragement from the state, but they were not agents. Strelkov was not an agent of the state. And the guys who came with him were not agents of the state, and many of them were doing it because of some kind of ideological commitments that they had to this idea of New Russia and so on. So Strelkov became a form of, became a sign or a proof and evidence that Russia, once referendum will be held, as in Crimea, we are going to, we can expect more Russian presence on the ground. We can expect the presence of the coming of the Russian troops to support the separatist movement. That, of course, did not happen. This is really interesting because this feeling of hope that the Russians will come and back them up if they go forward with a a military rebellion is is quite interesting. And that leads me to ask you about the recordings that came out last week by the Ukrainian prosecutor general, Yuri Letsenko. The prosecutor released intercepted radio tapes of of Russian presidential advisor Sergei Glazev discussing efforts to essentially, it sounds like, stage manage protests in southern and, and eastern Ukraine. Now, what do you think of these tapes, and and where do you place them in the origins of the separatism in the Donbass? Well, first, I think they're very useful to us as scholars who are studying it, because there is a lot of, of course, most of what happened happened around Donbass was happening in the shadows. So any attempt to look behind the curtains is very useful. I would also add that, unfortunately, these tapes are edited, and I would prefer, it was very clear that they were edited, so... The security service of Ukraine gave us only those excerpts from the conversations that they felt was going to serve their narrative, their story, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, of course, as I would, I would prefer to hear a non-edited version of the entire conversation. Yeah, and many people have said this. Yeah, I also would add that, of course, 
The fact that Russians were involved in attempting to stir up trouble in southeastern Ukraine is not something unusual. It's not something surprising. But there were several things that I found surprising from these tapes, and let me name some of those. So first of all, it seemed like from some of the uh, initial narratives, and especially the uh, what we heard from the Ukrainian government, it seemed like there was a large presence of the Russian intelligence services on the ground in different parts of southeastern Ukraine that were, according to the Ukrainian government officials, directing these people and telling them what to do. And also, you they brought in many of the Russian so-called tourists. That's how the Ukrainian government called them, Russian tourists who came in to basically portray themselves as if they are Ukrainian protesters. Now, the conversations that I heard seem to suggest that the Russian intelligence presence, if it was there, it was not that significant because the basic questions that these guys direct to Sergei Glazyev, who is sitting in Moscow, the very basic questions about what to do, which office to capture, at what exactly we should do once we capture these offices. These very basic questions seem to point that there was no real serious point of reference or contact on the ground that would tell them, feed them some kind of a strategy, right? And they had to actually call up the guy in Moscow. The second thing that also surprising to me is the level of chaos that has been going on. So rather than a planned operation, where you had guys at the top who had a clear strategy, clear understanding what they want to do. We basically see from, from Glazyev uh, and Zatulin very chaotic attempts to influence things on the ground, dealing with the guys whom they think may be on their side, but they're not so sure because, as Zatulin says to uh, Glazyev, they keep asking for money. They keep on asking for money. So when you hear the, these conversations, and I, I have a, to acknowledge that one of the, some of the guys who call, they don't, they don't sound particularly sober to me, some of the guys who call Glazer. <laughs> they, they, sound, they sound kind of drunk on the, yeah. on the phone. So it seems like you have, the impression I get is a bunch of charlatans sitting on the ground trying to milk the Russians for the money in uh-huh. exchange for creating a pretense of some kind of a, separatist disturbance in these different cities. So the picture, the initial picture, of course, maybe the, that's what the, one of the reasons they tried to uh, they, uh, release this tape so late was that it was not very convincing from the start. And many people who heard them uh, initially, they were, not, they were not very impressed. So they, they were not willing to release these tapes and they came in only right now. The third thing that was also surprising to me is the absence of the smoking gun in these in these states. And by the smoking gun, I mean a conversations that Glazyev, Zatulin, whoever had with the leaders of Donetsk, Luhansk, and other towns around Donbass. We only hear the conversations about two cities, uh, three cities, Odessa, Kharkiv, and Zaporizhia. We only hear conversations about these three cities. There is nothing in the tapes that would point to their direct involvement in Donbass. Now, there is, it's, it's quite possible that it was there. We heard conversations, of course, between Strilkov and Malafiev and Strilkov and Baradai. Uh, we still haven't heard the direct conversations with the leaders of the separatist movement in Donbass. That's something that I wish, uh, if the Ukrainian government has, I wish we would be able to hear as well. All of this is going on. It's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of vacuum, institutional or, or, or power vacuum going on in certain part of Ukraine. How does Kiev respond to these events? Now, you've already hinted at the fact that the locals 
have actually called Kiev and, and are asking for support for the police, and they basically didn't get an answer. So what was the broad response in Kiev to all of this? So initially, from what we know now, the response, uh, the initial response was an attempt by several key officials, uh, Andriy Parubi, Vitaly Yerema, people who were uh, high-ranking officials in the post-revolutionary government, to come to these areas. So they went to Donetsk, uh, uh, Yerema went to Donetsk, Parubi went to Luhansk, and they tried to bargain and negotiate with the local leaders with the participation of some of the local elites, like Renat Akhmetov. And... What we know is, A, negotiations that happened at that time were not very productive because neither Parubi nor Yerema had a clear sense of authority that they were delegated. They did not have much of authority to negotiate with these, with these separatists. They also were not willing to take a lot of responsibility for making decisions. So many of the decisions that should have been made right there were postponed because they felt that they need to consult with people in Kiev. And people in Kiev were also unwilling to make many decisions that were related particularly to the use of force. And in the case of Donetsk, there was an order that was given by Yarema to use Alpha to storm the government building in Donetsk, the local administration, which was at that time captured by the local separatists and the current leader of the Donetsk People's Republic, uh, Zaharchenko was sitting in that building at the time when Alpha was supposed to go and capture this building. That was in mid-April. And interestingly, neither the law enforcement nor the special force, Alpha, the special force of the security service, was willing to participate in this operation. They basically refused to go in and to storm this building. And in view of some, it was a, a very important turning point early on, because if initially they found the source resources, as they did in Kharkiv, particularly in Kharkiv, uh, if they found resources to basically to recapture these buildings and to arrest some of these separatist leaders, it would have been a much more difficult task later on for the separatists in other towns to organize uh, a, a coordinated resistance. But they did not have these resources in Donetsk and Luhansk. And one of the reasons they did not have resources, so apart from the role of Alpha, apart from the role of local law enforcement, another important factor, I think, that explains it is the lack of organized pro-revolution, pro-Maidan networks of activists, particularly the ones that were willing to use force. In Kharkiv, of course, it was Azov and uh, at that time, it was not Azov, it was, it was no Azov, it was Patriot of Ukraine, and Biletsky, the commander of the Azov battalion right now, but he was very active at that time in negotiating with Kernas on how to recapture these buildings, and he had a military, a militant force, the militant, a group of militants who were capable and willing, willing to use force against the separatists. So there was a counterweight in all of the cities. In Donetsk and Luhansk, there was no counterweight uh, among the local activists. Even though there were some activists, as we know, they were not organized, and the Ukrainian government was not willing to back them up. There were a number of interviews that I did with some of the activists who were there at the time, and they, they told me that they were asking for weaponry, they were asking for financial support, and there was none coming from Kiev. Uh, of course, that may have been the, the reason why there was none coming from Kiev was that Kiev was very uncertain about who these guys were. So 
they did not did not had no idea uh, whom they were dealing with. A lot of chaos and uncertainty again. But in Kharkiv, because the Patriot of Ukraine was a long-standing, pre-existing nationalist, uh, racist, uh, xenophobic, etc., etc., network of activists, they were there to serve as a counterweight to, to the separatists. The second part of the uh, Ukrainian government's response, of course, was a response to uh, to the capture of Slavyansk by the group of uh, led by Igor Strelkov, and that was when we we basically see the beginning of the so-called anti-terrorist operation. And that anti-terrorist operation, as I explained earlier, was focused primarily on recapture of several key cities in the Netsk Oblast. The third part of the response happened already after the election of Petro Poroshenko as president. And that basically was a decision to start a large-scale military campaign and advance along the entire line in Donetsk and Luhansk trying to recapture parts of both oblasts. Um, and that in, involved both the greater, much greater use of force, a more lethal force, and of course, a, a deployment of the Ukrainian military, large-scale deployment of the Ukrainian military. Now, one important thing that I wanted to mention, what really, from my discussions with the people who experienced it, what really mattered in this initial stage was, I think, a careless attitude of the Ukrainian government towards the use of indiscriminate force against the separatists that led to high number or increasing number of civilian casualties. I think if there was, from the very start, a clear line that they would draw on the types of forces that they use, on, on the types of weaponry that they, they would use against the separatists, and an attempt to restrain some of the groups, particularly among the volunteer battalions, who were willing to go in and use a lot of indiscriminate force uh, against uh, the locals. There was an attempt to restrain that and uh, draw this line. I think the locals would have reacted very differently to the attempts by the local by the Ukrainian government to recapture these territories. But the a the use of this term anti-terrorist and b this uh, reliance on artillery. At some point, of course, there was a lot of use of airplanes and air power. All of that combined basically hardened the grievances against the Ukrainian government increased this uh, sense of illegitimacy of the Ukrainian authorities, and also the feeling that the guys who were there, the armed people, so-called self-defense forces, the army of Novorossiya, or, or whatever you call them, these guys were their defenders. They were the ones who could defend, the only ones who could defend the local civilians from the Ukrainian army. Yeah, and you point that out in the article, some of the people that you were able to survey who formed the rank and file of the separatist forces. These, these issues do seem to motivate them to fight. Uh, but I want you to go into that a bit more. Like, what motivates these guys to join separatist forces and fight? And I think most importantly is how, how have those motivations changed over the last two years? Like, why would some, somebody keep fighting at this point or even join at this point? So, of course, this is the, the question of motivations is very difficult uh, in, in social sciences because you cannot approach a person and ask what your motivations is. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's very, very unlikely they're going to give you the exact motivation. Maybe they will, but you, you should be skeptical about what they say their motivations are. Based on both direct and indirect testimonies that I heard, so the interviews that I conducted with a bunch of former and, and current uh, members of Apolchenia, of this insurgency army, and also based on, of course, the field research that I've done and talking to the local civilians, it seems that uh, there was no clear-cut motivation. And, of course, the factor of making money, the financial reward, was there. By different estimates, about 
a third, maybe half initially, of the people who were joining Opolchenia were doing that because of they were expecting to regain some kind of financial material reward. Now, it was not necessarily the uh, expectation to get a salary, right, from participating in Opolchenia, but an expectation, for example, to participate in taking over, taking someone's car, taking over someone's apartment, etc. So so these local motives, and this is, uh, of course, one of the key insights of the literature on civil wars and ethno- ethno-political conflicts is that there is a master frame why the elites or the leaders are saying we are doing what we are doing. But then there, of course, there is a, a local reasoning of the people who uh, decide to join the insurgency. And that local reasoning, that local logic may have nothing to do with the master frame of fighting the fascist junta. So I think there was a large segment of uh, the Opolchenia, especially initially, who were doing that for some kind of nefarious reasons. But I would also say, again, it, uh, from both the polls that I did uh, among Apolchense and the, talking to local civilians, it seemed like at least a third, maybe more than that, uh, were ideologically driven. So you, we've, we've seen some of the activists from different political parties, like Communist Party, like Vitrenko Socialist Progressive Party, many of these activists who were local deputies, they were the ones also who were joining Apolchenia. For me, it's a sign that they were doing that for ideological reasons. So you have a history of ideological act- ideologically motivated activism that then leads this people to participate in the, in the insurgency. You also see people who are motivated, of course, by revenge. And I think that's another third of the initially of Apolchenze. These are people from Berkut, former police, people who were alienated or infuriated by what they were seeing on Euromaidan and felt that there is no future for them in the new Ukrainian state. So I think these were the three main most important groups and that had these very different motivations. As a result, the Opolchenia itself was a very diverse group, right? That had a very diverse reasons for for being there, for taking up arms. In addition to the, not only are the narratives about the origins of the war politicized, but even what people call the war in the Donbass is extremely. I've heard it called simply just Russian aggression. I recently heard it called a pseudo civil war, but you explicitly call it a civil war. Why? So I certainly describe what was happening up until August as a civil war. I think the nature of the war changed with the direct Russian invasion in uh, August of 2014. But before that, I think it was civil war. And it's actually coded by uh, social scientists as a civil war. So the very famous database of uh, uh, civil war events uh, at the Uppsala University codes the conflict in Donbass as a civil war, because it fits the very basic definition when you have an organized armed force um, which challenges the state, and the um, conflict happens within the state territory, and there is a minimum of 1,000 battle-related fatalities, which, of course, the war exceeded uh, this number very quickly uh, in the first several months. There is also a requirement that the majority of people who are fighting are the locals, are the citizens. And I think that uh, even the Ukrainian side recognizes that initially in the first months up until August, the bunch, the bulk of the fighting was done by the local citizens, by the former Ukrainian or current Ukrainian citizens who decided to join the insurgency. Of course, there were Russian volunteers. Of course, there were people 
who were brought from Russia, who had expertise in military, maybe former Russian soldiers who participated in these armed uh, in in these events. But most of the people who rec were recruited were uh, local Ukrainians. The nature of the conflict changed with the intrusion of, of the uh, Russian army, and I think it became what some social scientists called internationalized civil war. And for it to be an internationalized civil war, you, there are two conditions for that. First, you need to have either over 1,000 regular army troops that would represent a foreign state, and I think that condition has been met in August. And also, you also, you also the second possible condition is you had over 100 fatalities. Uh, that come from the regular regular army soldiers of the foreign state, and I think that condition also has been met in August. So there was it clearly became an internationalized civil war, and some may argue, and I think there is a, a, a obviously a, a lot of reason to call it uh, that there is an element of an interstate war, primarily because the involvement of the Russian troops in August changed the course of events, and there of course it's all hypothetical, but. It, it may have been, it was, I think at that time, it was increasingly clear that the separatists by themselves were unable to hold on to the big cities. And the presence of the Russian troops, their active involvement, the uh, Ilovaisk tragedy, all of that basically led to the freezing of conflict along the contact line that uh, stands today and to the survival of these two separatist republics. So, so because of that, because of that, you can argue, I think, that you can credibly argue that there was also a component of an interstate war between Russia and, and Ukraine. Now, what's happening right now, of course, is very contested, and it's very difficult to give a clear definition to what's happening now, because on one hand, you have the majority of the separatist forces that consist of the former Ukrainian citizens. Uh, that is recognized by the Ukrainian government. So about 30,000 uh, members of these militias or uh, separatist forces are locals. And then you have, by different counts, six, eight, up to 10,000 possibly Russian soldiers, that many of whom are military commanders. So many of them are in very important commanding positions. Whether that qualifies, turns it, despite the fact that the majority who are, of people who are fighting are uh, locals, the fact that the military commanders are Russians, whether that turns it into an interstate war, I think is an issue that can be contested and can be discussed. In my personal opinion, I think it still should be viewed as an internationalized civil war, obviously with a large component of Russian interference, but still, essentially, it's about the contested issue that uh, is related to our internal affairs, to the issue of the rights of a particular region within Ukraine. And finally, the war has been going on for two years, and I assumed what happened in the spring and summer of 2014 might matter less and less to those fighting the conflict. Uh, I don't know, kind of theoretically thinking that about that. But, but why are the origins and the narratives we give to explain them important? Well, they are important, I think, for obviously scholarly reasons, for the same reasons that people still uh, argue about what caused the Spanish Civil War, for example, War 1812 and so on. But there is also, there are two important policy reasons for understanding the causes of the war in Donbass. One has to do with conflict resolution strategies. If we accept uh, the argument that the Ukrainian government makes about the 
primacy of the Russian factor in producing this war. Then the resolution goes primarily through Moscow, and it lies uh, through the negotiations between Kiev and uh, Moscow about what, uh, what should be done with this particular territory. The republics themselves and the elites that emerge right now, these local so-called Republican elites, of course, in this narrative play no role. There is no agency on their behalf. But if you accept the fact that much of what happened in Donbass was the result of local pent-up, bottom-up grievances that were influenced by political orientations of the locals, of the people who live there, then, of course, the strategy changes because now you really have to think through the ways in which you're going to address many of the grievances that people have. And many of these grievances, of course, are now stronger and hardened compared to what they were before in 2014. And you also have to think through the ways in which you're going to accommodate the demands that these many of their local representatives make to the Ukrainian state. So you actually have to view their demands as credible, not just something that is done for the purposes of serving the interests of Moscow, for example, for the purposes of misinformation or some other, uh, some, some other reasons. Uh, so you need to view their, that side, the separatist side, as a credible side in the negotiation process. And I think primarily because we refuse to do that, the Ukrainian government still refuses to do that, it's very unlikely that we are going to see this conflict resolved anytime soon. I also think it's important to explicitly talk about the local uh, grassroots causes of this conflict in order to convey to the Ukrainian public opinion uh, the idea, the notion that the conflict has not necessarily was not necessarily caused only by Russia, but it was also a part a response of the local populace to the political events in Kiev. And if the majority of public opinion accepts that, then maybe there will be a greater acceptance for the possibility of some kind of a autonomous or expansion of self. Uh, government for the region for that region of Ukraine, because at this point in time, of course, this notion that we have to give greater self-governments or increase the the autonomous status of Donbas that is rejected by the majority of the Ukrainian public opinion. That notion is completely unacceptable, and I think much of it is a, uh, the result of this view promoted by the Ukrainian government that it's primarily a Russian. And finally, I think that uh, another reason why it's important is for the purposes of conflict prevention. So if we understand that much of what happened was the result of the tactics that protesters, for example, used to take down the government, then we have also, in the future, we also have to be very careful about attempts to use extra constitutional means to change regimes or to change government. I think that history, the history of Euromaidan, should give us a pause when we again sort of strategize or plan of, on ways to organize a third Euromaidan or a third revolution, something that is very popular. If you listen to the Ukrainian media, you listen to Ukrainian public intellectuals, there's always this question about whether third Euromaidan is going to happen and if it happens, how it will look like, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. So these, these discussions, I think we have to realize, based on the experience of the second Euromaidan, that these discussions are going to be very risky uh, if they become a template for 
a particular strategy on the part of uh, some kind of uh, protest group. And any use of violent means in order to take down the government, I think, are going to produce more tensions within the Ukrainian state, even though I think it's more cohesive now than it was in 2014. It's much more cohesive now. But I think there are still a lot of unresolved issues that exist in the relationship between different regions. We see that based on opinion polls, on people's support for different political forces, on people's response to different public policy questions. So there is, these tensions are there. And I think if there is an attempt of violent regime change, of violent government ooster by the protesters, these tensions are going to come to the fore, to the surface, and that will endanger the integrity of the Ukrainian state. That was Sergei Kadelia, an assistant professor of political science at Baylor University, where he specializes in state formation, civil war, and political violence in the post-communist world. His most recent article is The Donbass Rift, first published in Russian in the journal Contrapunkt and in English in Russian Politics and Law. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. You could also support the podcast by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to everyone who's contributed. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Yeah.